Welcome everyone to a new episode of The Transcript. I'm editor of The Transcript, along with Eric Mokaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the newsletter earlier this week, and what we saw was that there was some commentary from FedEx about the number of packages that they're seeing move through their network. And that was similar to what we saw from Union Pacific last week, talking about a decrease in volume. And so this is a really negative macro indicator. Railroad companies and FedEx are so central to the amount of economic activity that's going on that it's a pretty negative data point. But then juxtapose that with still strong sentiment on consumer spending and consumer demand, and maybe just the hypothesis that what FedEx is really seeing is primarily a shift from goods to services as we continue to come out of the pandemic. So... Those are the two competing ideas. Eric, what do you think? The title of today's newsletter is telling itself. Are we in a slowdown or are we actually shifting demand in that sense? I think what FedEx did was send a pretty strong signal, which I liked and a bit to the what Walmart did a couple of months, is it weeks or months ago, where they say that they have excess inventory and then the stock tanked. So the same thing happened with FedEx. They, I think they had one of the biggest drops since 1987, since I think 1980s or something like that. So I think the signal is that the demand is shifting pretty significantly downwards in certain markets. And that was, that's what was worrying for FedEx. So I don't know how to position that in regard of some of the comments that we have in the newsletter that says, hey, consumer spending is holding up pretty strongly. And that comes from companies like Visa, MasterCard, IT&T, who are all saying, okay, consumer spending. Bank of America also saying in the month of August, consumers spend 10% more than they spent in August 2021. That to consumers are spending more, slightly above the inflation rate, you'd say. So I think uh, in terms of growth, if you compare that. So I don't know how to read the tea leaves right now ahead of the Fed meeting that we're having this week or so. Yeah. What's your key takeaway, especially from the macro section? I've given all these the puts and takes uh, that uh, different companies are saying. Yeah, I think the most important data point is still what the financial companies are saying. So the credit card companies and the banks, they see the largest volume of economic activity. And they're the ones who see both goods and services spending. And Visa was actually the one who said most directly that what we're seeing is shifts from goods to services and spending is still hanging in. And so I really defer to what they're seeing. The other thing that was interesting, I can't remember which company, but one of the big financial companies was saying that they also saw, regardless of income, upper income and lower income, consumers still continuing to spend strongly. We had a, a number of quotes that we're talking about, just consumer balance sheets remaining very strong, high amounts of deposits. I, I still don't really know how to juxtapose the consumer section against the micro sections that we're looking at, though, where we're seeing, for instance, Uber talking about 70% of their drivers who are coming into the workforce saying that inflation was a driver of them looking for a job which to me would suggest that a lower income consumer is feeling pressured by the inflationary environment. And then the other data point that's negative in the micro sections is within the technology section, several quotes talking about IT spending, sales cycles pushing out, which deals are still closing apparently, but you don't like to see that sales cycles are lengthening because that's a sign of slowdown as well. Yeah, I think it's really hard to, uh, once again, read what exactly is happening here. As, as, as you've alluded to, the consumer is still spending pretty well. The branch sheet is pretty strong, but there are pockets or spaces where you see a little bit of issues. Like the delinquency rates are rising slightly, not too much, slowing down a bit, sales cycles are extended a little bit. 
So the big question I think you would ask, and then of course this past week we also listened to Druckenmiller talk about the prospects of a recession. So there was, like his his prognosis was a bit dark, but he, of course he gave the caveat that he's a pretty dark person himself and he likes it. But I think his prognosis, I could really say, is like uh, with the caveat that he's been doing this for forty five years, and of course he's been seeing a lot of uh, he's been mostly dark during this period of time. He sees that he. The odds of a recession and a change in the macroeconomy are about as high and severe as I've seen them in decades. Do you share that view yourself? Yeah, I think so. The number one leading indicator of a recession is bad monetary policy. And usually it's because the economy and capital markets specifically aren't really responding to what the Fed is saying or trying to have happen. And so the Fed puts more and more pressure on the economy in terms of higher interest rates or more restrictive monetary policy. And then eventually capital markets and the economy catch up to what the Fed has been trying to get them to do. That is a cycle that is highly repetitive throughout 20th century American economic history. And so you see this situation very clearly here where the Fed seems to want to be taking demand out of the economy, is speaking in very clear hawkish terms, and yet markets, capital markets continue to seemingly ignore that ignore them. So we are, are in this zone where perhaps good news is bad news for capital markets. And we're not seeing signs of a slowdown, which means that the Fed may have to push even harder, which could be pretty bad for capital markets. Yeah. So a comment I saw one of the people who comes to a podcast share a lot. He's called Alex Morris. He talks about from it's Clam Seth Clamon from 2010, who is saying, I'm more worried about the world broadly than I've ever been in my career. And we worried whether we'll have another 10 years of zero returns. So, <laughs> are we too dark? <laughs> yes, maybe, but it, look, it all depends to me on what the policy response is. So if the Fed and the federal government decide that they want to change course and start simulating the economy, then it's very likely that we'll avoid a recession. But at this point, both the Federal Reserve and the federal government seem to be taking a hawkish stance. And the expectation is you get a recession. Once you get a recession, then this is the way that the U.S. federal government is reactive for 60 plus years, is that once you get a recession, the stimulus comes back. And the question for the, on the 10, 15 year outlook is, does that stimulus, if they bring it back, lead to more inflation? Or have we really actually crossed the inflation at this time? But in the near term, in the immediate term, Hawkish monetary policy is not usually good for capital markets. I think time will tell, but we will surely hope that it's an episodic issue and not like a persistent niggling problem that you'll keep having. So I think one of the key quotes that I also noted from the earnings to this week was about the issue of deglobalization that is also continuing to happen in terms of the macro issues that you're having and inbound travel. Internationally, I think what's happening is there are two things. One is the globalization where markets are becoming more and more segmented and really everyone was trying to create an entire supply chain in their own backyard that they can control. And secondly, the other thing that's happening is energy prices in Europe. They're significantly higher. We are experiencing such a tough time. And I think one of the things that happened last week was the German government seizing some assets of, of Russian, a Russian company that is based in Germany. So I think what you're increasingly seeing is a real worry on how this winter is going to be like for all of these companies. I don't know if you're feeling the same in the US, but in generally in Europe, people are very worried about how this winter is going to We can see that really in the jump in terms of the, some of the prices that you're getting in there. 
in terms of electricity and gas and all. So it's a real worry heading into the winter. I don't know how that can be played around the world, but in Europe, we're suffering already, even before the winter comes. Yeah, it's something that you can perceive from the U.S. that in Europe, there's a greater focus on energy costs and particularly this concern about what happens in the winter with energy costs. I think in the U.S., people are frustrated with high energy costs, specifically gas prices. But I think the conversation has died down a little bit around that. And so I don't really know that it's totally analogous to the conversation in the U.S. and Europe around inflation. Other than that, so maybe one key thing that stood out for me was the comparison between Google, Microsoft, and Amazon in terms of cloud being real serious cloud players versus the rest. So I think I'll actually the quote where he compared, I think the rest of the sub 20 billion revenue companies to something like mom and pop shops. And then the top three are more like a Walmart. So I think like it's, it looks like a market where we now will take it all at the end of the day. And those sub part players may not be able to survive. But haven't also mom and pop, mom and pop shops survived Despite the fact that there is Amazon, there is Walmart at the end of the day, though. So I think a bit of a, not a complete analogy, but I think that stood out for me this week in terms of how much the two, the top three companies at least are investing. I think something like what some of the statistics are, is they have 42,000 people selling their cloud capabilities around the world. They're spending around 20 billion plus a year in terms of CapEx and all. So I think that stood out for me this week. Any thoughts? Anything else that stood out for you? Yeah, I thought that quote was really an interesting one. And it, I think it brings up something that's interesting, which is that capital intensive businesses can create their own moats. Yeah. I think this is counter to the way that people have thought about capitalism and industrial economy for 30 plus years now, where in the US, we've gone to this extreme in terms of optimizing for returns on invested capital. And that's really that that's what you're supposed to be doing, but there still are moats around heavy capital intensive businesses. And I think the reason they could afford doing turning off the marketing is that they're already a big brand. And secondly, of course, this is during the pandemic and everybody had to go do something at the end of the day. So I think like for them, it's coincided with that. I don't think you can do that for a lot of companies. There's a company called Copa. They invest a lot in owning a big pieces of land. I think I saw a quote, like they own selling like 16,000 acres of land in the U.S. And uh, I can't remember the statistics very correctly, but their mot is actually just owning prime pieces of land in particular places where they can use them to sell their vehicles at the end of the day. So I think that dovetails really well with what you're saying. Like at the end, so in sub, for some companies, owning physical assets may actually be a mot for them at the end of the day. I think that's a good place to maybe end. A quick one though, there's a quote you really like from Frank Slutman. Uh, could you, any quick comment on it? <laughs> He's quite a straight shooter in earnings calls. And he was being interviewed by the Goldman Sachs CEO, which is pretty rare. So like CEO interviewing CEO. And I think the back and forth is such a fun conversation. Actually, if you have time, you can listen to it. But I think this kind of quote in terms of quality shareholders, this was something that stood out for me. So I don't know what hit, what hit you from that quote. Anything that stood out for you? Yeah. I think you're pulling out that I took the quote of Dale's pick flies. Yeah, pepper or something. Yeah. You were the one who read the, read the conversation. What was your impression? What do you like about it? It's pretty straightforward. Like he only wants shareholders who are in it for the long term. He does not want any short-term shareholders. So if you're thinking like the quarterly guidance he gives is very meaningful, I think 
you're not the kind of shareholder that you want for the company. So I think that it, I think it dovetails really well with what Warren Buffett keeps saying about like quality shareholders, are one of the biggest assets that a company can have also. So he doesn't want, he doesn't like quarterly earnings calls. So he wants us to drive us out of business, so to speak. But I, I like that. I like that perspective that he is a long-term thinker. He gives long-term guidance and he wants long-term shareholders to be part of the, of the journey towards creating value long-term. So I think that that's the thing that stood out for me there. <laughs> but it's a good place to close. Thank you for joining us this week. I'll see you again next week for another session as we draw close to the Q3 earnings season next month. Bye.